Chapter Three of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter Three, The Decorative Drama. Both in painting and in sculpture the decorative artist labors under limitations more precisely technical than those which are imposed upon his freer fellow-craftsmen. A decorative painting must fit the room that it is destined to adorn, and, to this end, its mere patterning of lines and colors becomes more important than the subject it sets forth. A decorative bit of sculpture must be molded in reference to the general architectural design of which it is a mere detail and it cannot be judged by the same standards that we apply to the appreciation of a statue modeled by and for itself. In the exercise of every art there are two steps. First, a selection of details from nature, and second, an arrangement of the details selected, in accordance with a pattern. To the ordinary painter, the ordinary sculptor, the first of these steps is the more important of the two and his work will interest us mainly on account of the details he has decided to select from nature. But to the decorative artist, the pattern is of prime importance. It scarcely matters what details he chooses to exhibit, so long as he arranges them in accordance with a satisfying scheme. The ordinary painting must tell us something about life. If it be a portrait, it must exhibit the painter's appreciation of a person. If it be a landscape, it must exhibit his appreciation of some phase of out-of-doors. But the decorative painting may deal with either cabbages or kings, without expressing any sympathy with either, provided that the motive be developed in a composition that shall be harmonious in itself and appropriate in line and color to the room that it completes. The same distinction holds in sculpture. If any single figure in that serried rank of kings that is strung across the façade of Notre-Dame de Paris were taken down from its niche and set up on a pedestal, it would look abnormally tall and slender, and curiously cramped, because, like any ordinary statue, it would then be set in competition with nature. But, in its proper place, the figure is not intended to compete with nature. It is intended merely to continue, and not disrupt, a pattern that covers the face of an entire building. It will be seen that the art of decoration is, of all the arts, the most removed from nature. It is the one art in which the subject matter is of very small account, and the technical presentment is of overwhelming importance. An egg is not an interesting object, and neither is a dart. But the egg and dart molding that the Greeks developed is so superbly decorative that it has held its own against all attempts at innovation throughout immemorable centuries. In decoration, Art is exercised solely for the sake of art. The decorative painter values lines and colors. The decorative sculptor values forms and shadows utterly for their own sakes, without particular reference to the objects which happen to furnish them to his hand. But the ordinary painter, the ordinary sculptor, works with his eye upon the object. The object interests him in and for itself and he marshals technical details merely to minister to his purpose to render the thing as he sees it. A good painting, a good statue, awakens us to a realization of life, but a good decoration relieves us from such a realization. Paintings and statues assert the importance of nature, but decorations assert the importance of art. The painter 
and the sculptor ask us to admire a subject, but the decorator asks us to admire a pattern. If, with this distinction in our minds, we compare the contributions of Puvis de Chavana and Edwin A. Abbey to the walls of the Boston Public Library, we shall see that the Frenchman excels from the decorative standpoint and that the American excels from the pictorial standpoint. It is a merit to the panels of Puvis that they melt into the surrounding marble and refuse to arrest the transitory eye by reminding it of life. The mild and misty colors, the conventional and uninsistent outlines abstain from capturing attention to the subjects that are touched upon, and the wanderer comes away remembering that he has climbed a lovely stairway, but forgetting that he has paused to look at pictures. But Abbey's Tennysonian narrative of the legend of Sir Galahad attracts attention to itself, reminds the loiterer of life, and makes him utterly forget that he is in a building. It disrupts the room that it was meant to decorate by rendering the observer impatient of a roof. From the technical standpoint, it spoils the room by sweeping it away. Readers of these pages do not need to be again reminded that the drama, in this modern age, has tended to become more visual than auditory in its medium of appeal, and has allied itself, in recent years, more with the art of painting than with the art of literature. Ever since the adoption of the picture-frame proscenium, the prevalent and customary play has been pictorial. But very recently it has occurred to certain producers to go a step further, and to handle the drama not merely as a series of pictures, but, finally, as a series of decorations. That interesting, inconsistent theorist, Mr. Gordon Craig, is one of the leaders of this movement. But its most successful practical exponent has been Professor Max Reinhardt of Berlin. Professor Reinhardt, at the present time, he began his career in conformity with other theories, conceives an acted play as a bit of decoration. He does not desire that a drama should offer a judgment or a criticism of life. He desires, rather, that it should offer a continuously seductive pattern of lines and colors, forms and shadows to the eye. In his present view, the drama should not, like a picture, compete with nature by awakening the spectator to a realization of life. It should, rather, like a decoration, satisfy the spectator by an utterly aesthetic patterning of visual details. Whereas in recent years the majority of our theatric artists have been striving to return to nature, Professor Reinhardt is now endeavoring to get away from it. He does not ask us to be interested primarily in life. He asks us to be interested primarily in art. This consideration should be borne in mind in any criticism of the pantomime of Sumerin, which has recently been represented in America. This production of Professor Reinhardt's may be taken as a type of the decorative drama, and it should, properly, be appreciated by some critic of the decorative arts instead of by a critic of the theatre. By divesting the drama of the spoken word, Professor Reinhardt has removed it from the realm of literature and bereaved it of any reference to actuality. He has conceived it, rather, as a continuous frieze of flitting, ever-fluctuating decorations. A glance at any scene in Sumerin indicated that this oriental panorama should be judged less as a drama than as a painting, and less as a painting than as a decoration. The stage pictures were rendered in that particular style of Sessionistic artistry that is still popularly known in Germany as the Jugendstil. It gets its name from the fact that, 
although the original inspiration came from Paris, it became most popular in Germany through the work of a clever group of artists illustrating the satirical magazines Jugend and Simplicissimus. They made it an effective fashion for all decorative purposes. They found that flat backgrounds, utterly lacking in perspective, that striking outlines and solid blocks of color, they favored Egyptian angles for the rendering of figures, served particularly well for poster and cartoon work. For work, in other words, in which an idea had to be impressed in an instant on the spectator, even in the most careless glance, so emphatically that it should remain for some time in his memory. This method, a method devised in the first instance for the adornment of magazine covers, Professor Reinhardt has developed for the uses of the decorative drama. He divests his backgrounds of perspective lines and renders them in monochrome. In consequence, they stop the eye and fling into vivid relief the costumes of the actors. These costumes are designed not as dresses in reference to life, but as blocks of color in reference to art, and the colors are simple in themselves and harmonious with one another. The method of the entire decoration is impressionistic. It proceeds by the suppression of details and by the arrangement of the very few details selected in accordance with a pattern of conventional simplicity. The lighting of the stage is emphatically simple. In the scene of the sheik's bedchamber, which may be taken as typical, there are only two light values, a lantern at the head of the stairway and a streaming light cast down funnel-wise over the bed of the sheik. The most impressive scene of the entire play is a mere procession of all the characters across the stage before a blank wall of unobtrusive gray, above which is seen a black palace drawn without perspective upon a sky of slate. The drama, thus exhibited as decoration, tells in pantomime two distinct but intricately intertangled stories, accompanied by interpretive music patterned in post-Wagnerian fashion out of the intermingling of appropriate leading motives. It is unnecessary in this consideration to summarize either of these narratives. Both of them are inevitably violent, since they must tell themselves immediately to the eye without the aid of words. The passion of love must express itself in lust, the passion of revenge must express itself in murder, the mood of humor must express itself in physical buffoonery, in a narrative that is conceived as decoration. In America, the subject matter of Sumerin seems to have astounded a certain section of the public, and even a certain number of the newspaper reviewers, by its absolute divorce from all morality. It is, of course, unimaginable that a decoration should be either moral or immoral. A mere pattern of lines and colors suggests no logical association with life, and it is only in the sphere of life that a distinction between morality and immorality can have any pertinence. In life, for instance, murder is indubitably an immoral occupation. But if a decorative artist, desiring merely a splash of red to complete a color composition, should choose to represent a murdered man dripping the harmless, necessary pool of blood, it would be illogical to accuse him of immorality. Such an art as decoration, which has nothing to do with life, must not be judged in terms of life, and Sumerin, though lust and murder run rampant through its decorative narrative, is no more immoral than the egg and dart molding that adorns the buildings of the world. To conceive such decoration as immoral is to confess a lack of culture. End of chapter 3